For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. There's a case in front of the Supreme Court this year that haunts me a little bit, partially because it's about the place I live, New York. Justices today heard oral arguments in the most important gun rights case in more than a decade. The case centers around It was argued a couple of weeks back. This case is about whether it is too hard to get an unrestricted gun license in New York State. The plaintiffs say they should be able to carry their firearms wherever they want, not just to work or the gun range. And I think I got really invested in the outcome of this case because of the way the justices talked about my city. They seemed scared. Could I explore what that means uh, for ordinary, law-abiding citizens who feel they need to carry a firearm for self-defense? This is Justice Samuel Alito. He's grilling New York's Solicitor General. So I want you to think about people like this, uh, people who work late at night, in Manhattan. It might be somebody who cleans offices, might be a doorman at an apartment, might be a nurse or an orderly, might be somebody who washes dishes. None of these people has a criminal record. They're all law-abiding citizens. They get off work around midnight, maybe even after midnight. They have to commute home by subway, maybe by bus. When they arrive at the subway station or the bus stop, they have to walk some distance through a high-crime area, and they apply for a license, and they say, look, nobody has told, has said, I'm going to mug you next Thursday. However, there have been a lot of muggings in this area, and I am scared to death. They do not get licenses. Is that right? That is, in general, right, yes. If there's nothing particular to them, that's right. How is that consistent with the core right to self-defense, which is protected by the Second Amendment? After this argument wrapped up, it was clear what the justices wanted to do. They wanted to loosen gun restrictions. But I gotta say, the idea of people arming themselves in the subway kind of terrifies me. I used to ride the subway home after overnight shifts. I would nod off as the train rattled through Canal Street. The idea of being trapped in a speeding metal tube with a bullet ricocheting around no thanks. Add to that the fact that gun sales have spiked since the pandemic, and Kyle Rittenhouse was just found not guilty, even after shooting three people in the middle of a public street. It all makes me uneasy. And I'm not alone. If the court strikes down New York's strict law on concealed carry, we could have a lot more people rocking around armed, thinking about doing harm to people just because they're mad. But today on the show, you're going to hear a different point of view, an argument that what the Supreme Court seems set on doing in this case might right a tremendous wrong. This perspective, it demands that you consider who gun control is controlling. 
I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. If you dig around the case docket for New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, that's the case making its way through the Supreme Court, you'll come across an amicus brief that might surprise you. It's authored by a bunch of legal aid attorneys who've thrown their lot in with the Second Amendment types who want to loosen the rules around guns. Their argument goes like this. Restrictive licensing, combined with a police force that's eager to charge black and brown people with weapons possession, adds up to mass incarceration. They list off one sad story after another, like the story of Jasmine Phillips, who lawfully owned a gun in Texas, but got prosecuted for unlicensed possession while visiting family in New York. Or the story of Sam Little. He survived a face slashing, but then he got prosecuted after he carried a gun to defend himself and his young son. Sharon Mitchell, a public defender in Chicago, He's got a lot of stories like these. You know, I see the people that were prosecuted, right? I think about the young man that I defended who had a gun in his bag that was licensed in another state. And he, you know, accidentally took it to a bar and, you know, his life was over. Like that ruined his life, right? He lost his job. He lost his housing, you know, and, you know, we had to go to trial and, it, and that ruined his life. I think it is understandable to like look very early on at this approach and say, of course, we should give people felonies for not possessing guns in the correct way. But when you really look at the results and you look at what's actually happening on the ground, it's it's tough to hold that same thought. What would have happened to him if he was white and somewhere rural in Illinois? Put your gun back in your car. Come back. That's it. Yeah, that's it. We ended up winning the jury trial, but he still went to jail, right? The jury looked at this and said, hey, this was a mistake. Hey, I don't think this is felonious conduct. But but they made him fight for it. He lost a lot. The system made him fight for it. And too often, mistakes or bad judgment is treated one way in one place in another way, in another place. Sharon wrote an article in support of the New York-based defenders. He called it, There's No Second Amendment on the South Side of Chicago. He says, you can see the disparate impact of gun laws, not just in who gets ensnared by them, but where the enforcement occurs. Our offense is called UUW, unlawful use of a weapon. And there are different types of UUWs, but the one type, like the the lowest level felony, the class four felony, 33% of the charges statewide come from 11 communities in Chicago. 11 communities, the entire state. 
you look at the UUW numbers, the unlawful use of a weapon, you look at how it's used in Chicago and how it's used outside of Chicago, and you would think that guns only exist in Chicago. And you would think guns only exist in, like, you know, in a small number of communities. And that's not correct. You know, one of the reasons why the story was, you know, that I wrote is the Second Amendment doesn't exist on the South Side because in other areas of the state, that's just not the way they approach that situation. Sharon says the ironic thing about the selective enforcement of gun laws is that it's precisely the people in communities that get cracked down on who may have the most justified concern for their personal safety. For them, oftentimes owning a gun is part of a terrible downward spiral. Unsafe communities make people seek out weapons for self-protection. Then they get caught up in the justice system on a possession charge. Meanwhile, the police arresting them haven't done very much to actually make these neighborhoods safer. If these are the communities where you see an uptick in violence, those seem to be the people who have a reason to carry. That's not something I particularly would do. That's not something that I do. I live on the south side of Chicago. But it's understandable, and I see it every day when I talk to our attorneys, that people are scared. They turn on the news every single day, and they hear carjacking, robbery, murder, robbery, carjacking. And people are choosing to protect themselves. We have this assumption that making things a felony disavows people from performing that act. And I just haven't been convinced of that. At this point in Chicago, folks are not waiting for the government to tell them that they can carry. And I think too often we overestimate the the power of the criminal justice system to solve problems or fix the things that we need. I think people are living under the assumption that because you've got this very complicated scheme for getting licensed, that means people aren't going to carry. I think what it means is that people aren't going to carry legally. I agree with what you're saying about the systemic harm that you're seeing from possession laws. And I think you're right that when these laws exist, it's black and brown gun owners that get cracked down on. But I can't help but wondering if making it easier to have a firearm will keep people safer from physical harm from a gun. See, I guess I I get you, but I just reject the idea that we're making it easier to own a firearm. Because that's not the reality of what's happening in my communities. Even though we're sending tons of people to prison, all right, people still have easy access to guns. And even though CPD will take 12,000 guns off of these city streets, there are 100,000 guns that haven't been discovered. So that I, I think that's, that's, that's my issue. My issue is I agree with folks who support the need for safety and want to use the government's power to maintain safety. But I'm, that doesn't mean I'm unwilling to be critical of the actual solution. You're saying you, we can't be safe because the zone is flooded with guns. And so 
that's like problem one. And that the solution that we're offering, like, <laughs> and I'm just talking about my community right now. I'm just talking about my my, my community and, and the, the clients that I see, neighbors I see. I don't think the current scheme makes it hard to get guns. It makes it harder to legally possess a gun. That's true. But in the end, if somebody decides somebody just got shot in front of my house or every time I watch the news, I'm getting beaten over the head that I live in a hellscape. Well, I'm going to possess a gun whether the government tells me I can or not. And the question is, you know, how do we respond to that? Again, I I just think the way we're doing it in a way that is very targeted on a particular type of people. We live in a particular type of place and people who the numbers suggest they're not going to harm anybody are being thrown into prison and be given these felony background that's going to follow them forever. You know, if you look at the population of Illinois prisons, uh, there are more people in prison for weapons possession than there are for robbery. There are more people in prison for weapon possession than there is for kidnapping more than arson or burglary or DUI or forgery or vehicle hijacking or arson or retail theft. You know, this is really becoming kind of the new war on drugs where there's a real problem, right? But our solution to the problem doesn't actually fix the problem. In fact, it creates way more problems. I want to talk about your analogy to the war on drugs because I think it's really interesting, but I also feel like there's a place it breaks down for me where when I think about possession of guns versus, say, possession of heroin, the difference to me is that there's very little chance that your opioid is going to accidentally discharge on the street and kill someone. You don't use a drug to defend yourself or to hurt someone else. It's like a self-directed harm. So you can only kill yourself with drugs? It's just endangering other people to carry a gun in a different kind of way. Yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, I I think that it is drugs and guns aren't the same. I think my comparison is relevant. What, what What we're seeing is... A identification of a problem and a solution offered that has very little success at fixing the problem. And it is something that's really, it's exploding. You know, from 2014 to 2019, admissions to IDOC, Illinois Department of Corrections, gun possession went up 27%. Everything else went down 38%. Right. Arrests were down. Crime was down. As a result, we were sending less people to prison. But at that same time, the only offense that was going up was gun possession. Did it have any impact on, say, the murder rate or suicide rate? Yeah. And, and that's and, and see, that's the thing. Right. Despite of every single year increasing the amount of people that we put in prison or recovering guns, the murder rate continues to go up. And that's because people are scared. So my solution isn't like we should turn a blind eye to gun violence and let what happens happens. 
you know, I think I'm saying, should we be giving people felonies for this? Should we be only enforcing this law in certain communities? And should we be thinking about solutions that are much more proactive, that actually identify folks who are at risk of harm, a risk of being shot, and actually give them what they need to keep communities safe? We'll be right back. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers, all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I wonder if you think at all about the strange bedfellows, especially in the Supreme Court case, where there was an amicus brief filed by the Bronx defenders and others talking about their clients and how you know they are denied access to guns that they want. But they're teaming up in this case with the kinds of litigants who otherwise might not have their best interests at heart. How do you think about that? Like, do you worry that the black and brown people who agree with this argument that's being made at the Supreme Court are being used? No, um, I don't worry about that. I, I worry about the safety of my communities. Um, I worry about the people that I represent whose lives are being derailed by this scheme. I worry about the people who are victims and the families who are victims of gun violence. The strange bedfellows argument, it's a complicated issue. I think that often uh, we try to look at issues uh, with red and blue glasses, and we try to figure out is this, uh, you know, what side is is the conservative side and what side is the liberal side and, and where do you fit? But there are just some issues that are so complicated that it's not. And while I acknowledge that there are going to be people who hold different political views than me that may be on the same side of our fellow public defenders, I believe (laughs) that we're on the right side of this. And if there are other people that choose to be on that side as well, then that's what they've chosen to believe. I noticed that Chicago came up in the oral arguments 
Yeah. I mean, Justice Elena Kagan called it the world's worst place when it came to gun violence. Yeah. And I, I think I would also, you know, I think it's the world's, it has one of the world's worst strategies when it comes to gun violence. You know, 95 to you know, 94, 96% of the money that we spend here in the region is focused on responses to gun violence, right? So police, prosecutors, uh, defense attorneys, sheriffs, people that show up after the harm is happening, right? And four to six percent of the spending goes toward prevention, right? It goes toward actually stopping the harm or trying to stop the harm before it happens. You know, we have models, we have examples of actually reducing violence in a non-traditional way, but we're so enamored with this traditional idea of rounding people up, you know, seeing if they have guns, putting them in prison, uh, putting them on probation, taking their guns away. And we're just addicted to this idea that it's going to do something. And again, week after week after week after week, we see its failures. Hmm. In your ideal world, what does the legal framework around guns look like? I think it's a framework that doesn't include the criminal system. This idea that we criminalize possession of guns, um, I just don't think is a working model. I think when somebody presents to the justice system, especially young people in communities that are experiencing high levels of violence, I just don't think that putting them in prison is an effective response to that risk. We've seen models, interrupter models, violence prevention models, where people are identified to be at the highest level for shooting or being shot. They're paired with people that can be a positive effect in their life. They're giving the counseling they need to make rational decisions, and they are offered opportunities for a real economic future. You know, I feel like that approach is a much more effective approach than indiscriminately sending people to prison and hoping it gets better when it hasn't gotten better for years after years after years. And, you know, as a person who is on the South Side, who, you know, is, are in communities that suffer from harm, I want people to be held accountable for harm. But more important, more important than that is, I want the harm to stop happening. So I'm unwilling to just settle for, oh, we're holding people accountable if it's actually not keeping us safer. Can I tell you my fear when we start talking about loosening the rules around guns? My fear is what just happened in Kenosha with Kyle Rittenhouse, where you have a teenager who wants to carry a gun wants to defend property, goes out into the world. Other people have guns. And the jury essentially seems to have said, well, everyone had guns, so it's hard to tell really who's the aggressor. And I worry that we're setting ourselves up for much more of that if we're loosening the restrictions around who can have guns and where they can take them. I definitely understand us looking at the Rittenhouse case and trying to draw deeper conclusions about it. But the sad reality of the situation 
is that the vast majority of cases do not include a 17, 18 year old white teen going to a protest and deciding he wants to play cop for a day. And I think there's a real danger in taking a case like that and drawing conclusions of the whole legal system, because that's just such an outlier. Yeah. The Supreme Court seems to have a pretty good chance of taking the side of the gun and rifle folks in this case. But I wonder what's going to change in Chicago, if anything, if this case succeeds. You know, I think we'll have to see what the ruling is. What my hope is, is that we start to pull away a little bit from these traditional approaches that have not kept us safe. That we really think about um, these violence interrupter models that really identify folks who are in trouble and try to resolve the situation. Because for me, the thing that I feel I think most strongly about is I see folks that are in struggle, right? And the system's not giving them anything but more bad. Sticking somebody in prison for two, three, four years, putting them on probation, and then sending them right back to the same communities that they're in danger is doing nothing to fix the problem. And we spend a fraction of our dollars on some of those interventions that actually get at the solution. So I'm hoping if something were to happen that some people would see as drastic, that we would take the time to be like, okay, we've got to redo this thing. What is the best way to spend our limited dollars, not just to see politically tough, but actually provide safety for those that are literally under the gun? Shrone, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. Thank you so much. And it's a really great conversation. I know these conversations are incredibly difficult. So uh, if you are not all the way there with me, I completely understand. But I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak with peace. Sharon Mitchell Jr. is the chief defender for the Cook County Public Defenders. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad. And for this one last time, we're produced by Davis Land. He is heading off to do a great new project all his own. We are so excited to see what he does next, and we're so grateful for the time he worked with us. We're led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery, and I'm Mary Harris. If you want to see what I ate over Thanksgiving, you can go follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I hope you have a great holiday. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you back here on the other side of the weekend. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.